Great. Thanks for being here. <coughs> I have a little bit of a cold from my travels. So our theme is the other in um, Jewish uh, literature and tradition. And we have five weeks to do to explore this, and we'll cover a lot of ground. I want to remind you that this week and next week, we're having class on Thursday. The following week, March 1st, from 12 to 2, it's Purim. So instead of this class, we're going to have a Purim teaching and also a potluck lunch. Because one of the mitzvahs of Purim, like every other holiday, is to have a meal together, a festive meal together. So feel free to come. There's no charge for that one. It'll interrupt our study uh, of this, but I'll bring some Purim teachings that day. Okay, just wanted you to know. And then we'll go for three more weeks. To le- and then we'll, we'll, this will end right before Passover, which is good timing, since we were strangers in the land of Egypt. Um, so, when we, so let's just start with our own um, reflections about, you know, the word the other is very, um, uh, it's out there these days. We're talking about it. So what do we mean by the other? And that's an open question. Different, different than, than me. Different than me. So who's in your circle? Who isn't the other? I'm, mm-hmm. In one sense, everyone is the other. And then in another sense, we determine who our in-group is. And anyone outside of that in-group is the other. So we could relate to the other both as the mystery of every person we meet. You know, we could. We, we may head that direction. We're not going to focus on that first. We're going to focus on the other as the person that's not part of our circle, in-group, right? And, uh, you know, it seems that humans are, um, I would say, maybe um, wired, brain-wiring, uh, to be part of clans, to be part of families and clans, just like other primates, just like other mammals. Um, and that it's always been a situation of human beings organizing themselves into in-groups and out-groups. Uh, those in-groups used to be much smaller uh, and self-contained long ago, to, to the degree that you could think of hunter-gatherers as knowing everyone in their clan, right? And some social, some, some scientists, uh, evolutionary scientists, you know, have posited that our brain is wired to know about 250 or 300 people, something like that, that, you know, that are, uh, you know, what's the ideal size of a community? It sometimes gets discussed, you know, why the kibbutz was successful as a socialist communitarian community whereas larger national endeavors just turned into uh, totalitarianism. And it may be because you knew everybody, and you, could, you knew them as a, a person, so they weren't an anonymous other. That's an interesting thing to think about. As our categories of self-organization expand over the centuries, and you know, nationhood, for example, becomes our identity with millions and millions of people whom we don't know, and yet we share some kind of social compact and some kind of understanding that we stand under the same flag. It's interesting to consider who the other is 
in in contemporary times and whether yeah so Judaism for me provides a consistent uh, um, and truly consistent and irrefutable command to make sure we treat the other, whoever the other is, as a human being, same as us. So we get to spend the, first, the next few weeks reinforcing that sense in ourselves, knowing that Jew, this, is, this, may, this is not only what Judaism teaches, it may be the core message of being a Jew. We were strangers in a strange land, right? Uh, so the word that gets used for the other generally, there are several, in uh, Judaism is the ger. Okay, ger gets translated as the stranger, usually. Uh, it might better be translated as the resident alien. And uh, keep that in mind, because when the Torah talks about the stranger, it's always talking about the stranger who lives among you. The person who's not from your in-group, who happens to live in your community. So, resident alien. So, it's not just any stranger. It's not, stranger is not a great word. Resident alien is actually maybe a more accurate understanding of what the stranger is and um, what the word gare means. Um, the foreigner, yes, but a particular category of foreigner, because there are other words to describe foreigners who ha aren't living in your community, but maybe passing through or having business interests. They're called, the, and we're going to talk about these categories. That would be called a nochri, which means, which is translated into ultimately in English as gentile, and uh, or an akum, which means someone who worships the stars and planets, in other words, an idol worshiper, uh, or a czar, which means a foreigner. Um, so the ger is a particular category and refers to the other in our midst, right? The one who's thrown in their lot, who's living here, you know, who's the, and there's just no way around it, who's the undocumented immigrant, you know, who's the person who's making a life here but doesn't have a formal, doesn't have papers. You know, in the Torah, the other thing to keep in mind as we launch on this is that it's crucial to remember, you know, um, the Mordechai Kaplan's evolutionary understanding of Judaism. Uh, the, what, you know, I'm a Reconstructionist rabbi, and that's the method in which I was trained, a historical method. Because what ger means in Torah and in Tanakh is not what ger comes to mean in rabbinic and medieval Judaism. Because in Torah, the Judeans, the Jews, are a group living in the land of Judea with our traditions, practices, etc. But we're not a religion. Because the idea of, of religion hasn't been invented yet. As, a, as like, I'm Jewish. No, they were Judeans. This was their Torah. This was, but the idea of religion, they were tribal as much as... Only in the Roman Empire uh, does... It, with does the idea of that you can affiliate by taking on the beliefs of a group start to emerge 
And so ger, instead of being resident alien in the rabbinic period, starts to mean a convert, someone who has converted to Judaism. And there are two kinds of gerim in rabbinic literature, and we're going to explore it. There's something called the ger toshav, which means the resident alien, someone who hasn't formally converted, but is, in all, but is practicing Judaism and participating. And the ger tzedek, someone who's formally chosen to uh, convert to Judaism. And so the rabbis have cha- take the meaning of ger, which initially means in the Torah, someone who's resident among you, but not a member of the tribe. And as social <coughs> organization, social and organizational um, evolves, uh, it, they have a new meaning for it. And so the ger, as we'll study later, becomes the uh, convert, and the nochri, which just means the foreigner in the Torah, becomes the Gentile, the, which is the, the non-Jew. In the Torah, there's no such thing as non-Jews. There are other nations, but a non-Jew is, is, is a, a statement of kind of like, include your belief system. Do you understand what I mean? Because now you can adopt the Jewish belief system and become a ger. So the, under the rabbis, the other gets different categories. In the Middle Ages, the categories that the rabbis had created, and then they create boundaries in the Talmud laws about how you interact, start to be moot because, and really unfor- uh, counterproductive, because in the Middle Ages there was much more interaction between Muslims, Christians, and Jews than there was in the earlier period with the Roman Empire. And so in the Middle Ages, a lot of those Talmudic categories basically get ignored about who you can interact with and who you can't. We're going to look at all that. Which is all to say that in the modern period, the contemporary period, there are two ways to approach Jewish law. You approach it as a fixed entity, fixed in the rabbinic, in the Talmud, and therefore, if you're, if you're part of um, an orthodox or ultra-orthodox, I should say, community, those categories are basically immutable. And so you are still forbidden from interacting with the other in certain ways. It's a, it's a much stricter category. And those who've embraced modernity, including much of uh, the modern orthodox, such as the followers of Soloveitchik, uh, uh, who understood that the world had changed again. And so all is to tell you that the other is a, is a changeable category depending on the era in which we're exploring it in Judaism, which gives us liberty to look at it in our era, which, where social conditions are dramatically different than they were either in late antiquity or in the Middle Ages or in the 18th century, right? So then we want to start looking, as I do in my, this approach, for the principles, the core principles that we want to identify as we look at uh, all these categories. And, and uh, um, I'm always, it's always very encouraging for me because the core principles which we'll start exploring in the Torah are explicitly... Um, encouraging 
to us to treat everyone as a human being. Right? There's just no two ways about it. Even though there have been times, periods in Jewish history where the other person's humanity wasn't denied, but you also didn't have to give them the same consideration necessarily that uh, you gave to the Jewish community. So, uh, so let me pass these around. What I did was I excerpted <coughs> excuse me <coughs> I excerpted it would be great to have some water today. I didn't realize how uh, congested I was. usually Kleenex in here, yeah. We have enough. You can just put them right there. Did Carol get one? Yeah, good. Okay, so, as some of you may know, <clears throat> the... Um, the Talmud has a citation that says, the laws about concerning the foreigner, the ger, uh, are mentioned 36 times in the Torah. Some say 46. That's what it says in the Talmud. All of which is to say that the commandments regarding how to treat the stranger are the most frequently repeated by far. More than Shabbat, more than the Sabbath, more than a, the most frequently repeated exhortation in the Torah. I know. Gail? As far as I know, there were, when, when Jews came mm. in, the Hebrews, there were an enormous number of Canaanites. The Canaanites, yes. Canaanites that remained in the land. It's not clear what happened. Okay. But there were certainly no massacres. Right. Right. Um, so does most of that there, I mean, refer to Canaanites? Uh, some historians, some historians that I was reading in preparing for this class uh, attribute the Canaanite, local Canaanite population to be the primary uh, category of who is a Gare. They're people who live there, they live among you, right. and um, you've conquered their land. Thank you so much. And uh, so, yes, it's entirely, it's entirely possible that the population of Gerim, of strangers, refers to the Canaanite population. We don't know for sure, but it's a reasonable... Uh, so there would also then have been a very practical reason for having commentary in the Torah about it. There would be a practical reason for having commentary in the Torah about it. But it goes much deeper than that. Yeah, yeah, much deeper than that, in that we actually see ourselves over and over, as fundamentally strangers ourselves. The Jewish, the basic, most foundational view of Judaism, of the Jewish people, repeated over and over and over again, is that we are strangers. And we originate as strangers. We originate as Abraham, 
going to a land he does not know to sojourn there. Sojourn. Oh, another good translation of Gare would be sojourner. That would be another good, someone who's, who's spending a, a long period of time somewhere. Abraham sojourns there. Uh, he, his fundamental life story is that he leaves his home and goes somewhere to a land he does not know. He's, that's Abraham. And not only does he leave somewhere, he leaves the great empire that where he's coming from, the Ur of the Chaldees, is like the, the, the center of empire and civilization in that time. A number of centuries later, the Jews are strangers in the land of Egypt, the great empire. And uh, they, uh, Moses leads them out of there also from their condition as sojourners, as resident aliens, as, you know, and so I think, it's, I think it's important to consider that, and I've said this many times, that Judaism, in addition to seeing ourselves as strangers, we have to think of the ramifications of what that means about our worldview and of our, the, our, the, the thrust of our teaching, which is that we are skeptical of centralized armies, power, um, empire, uh, because we've been on the receiving end of what that means if you don't happen to be part of that category. And so the Jewish focus on the stranger is also a Jewish focus on a critique of... And the Tower of Babel story is also a similar story. Now, some, some scholars will say that, and they, they're legitimate to say that Judaism in some way is a pastoral where pastoral people critiquing big city life, right? And that's true, um, but that's not all it is. It's also a critique of what happens when power gets centralized in the hands of a uh, uh, god king. You want to say anything? No, I just thought of our current state. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, the critique, if you're going to be a Jew... You have to have a critique of power. <laughs> and um, I will say that the great challenge of the success of the Zionist revolution is that we successfully have reclaimed sovereignty. And then, if we don't, I've talked about this before, if we don't study our tradition, we will be corrupted just like every single other human being gets corrupted by access to power over other people. You're not talking about any current prime minister, are you? <laughs> He's gone far. He's really gone far. He's a Teflon guy. He has gone far. Who had a hand up? Uh, uh, is this also why uh, Judaism has no centralized leadership, uh, no pope, right. so to speak? That's right. Pa that's probably partly an historical... <laughs> a product of historical as being scattered, because in the ancient times we had a high priest and a king, but we're going to talk more about that because when the people demand a king of Samuel in the book of Samuel, God says, tell them what happens if they have a king. They're going to tax you. They're going to take away your sons and daughters. They're going to claim your horses and a big part of your crop. That's what happens when you have a king. You want a king? 
And the people say, we want a king. And God says, okay. So in our holy books, monarchy isn't glorified. It's actually looked at very skeptically. And so this goes back and back and back. So I'm going to go just back up a little bit to this commandment that everybody's always discussing and having different views on the commandment to love the stranger as yourself, right? Yeah. And people are saying, well, you can't love the stranger until you love yourself. And blah, blah, blah. Love your neighbor as yourself? Neighbor. It's your neighbor, I guess. Because it also says, love the stranger yourself. We're going to talk right, about that. that was the one that I kind of met. And if I am the stranger, and the stranger is the stranger, then the argument about who gets love first is kind of not really relevant. <laughs> right. Because because we are the same. And I just, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot because it comes up a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, people are saying today that what's one of the things that's lacking and that we need more of is empathy. Mm -hmm. And it seems like that that is like sort of like really zooms in on that because if I am you and you are me. Right. What does that mean? Let's say that the most expansive level of consciousness is when we realize that the other is part of us and we're part of the other. That's a very, boy, that's like graduate studies. You know, that's <laughs> like, because I'm working on that, but I also know that for me, blood is thicker than water, right? So everything it's just, it's just a fact yeah, of my... No, it's everything is existing parallel and side by side. Right, I would say, you know, yeah, levels of uh, aspiration, yeah. But to, to operate, this is not easy, every now and then I can do it, but very rarely, to operate with, in the world with that level of consciousness, is, it's really tricky, and I guess that's an aspiration right. that um, I have, right. which I don't succeed at very often, but at least Oh, you're pretty good at it. It's there in the back of my mind. Anyway. You, yeah, go on. And I, I just think that that's an important piece of going, you know, like sort of, yes, there's politics, and yes, there's kings, and yes, there's this, and there's psychology, and there's the whole thing, but it, it, it just feels to me like the Torah, that's what the Torah is getting at, at the essence of the commandments. I agree with you, and that's why I think it's important to think of the gear in the biblical sense of it, which is the one in our midst, mm -hmm. right? Not the theoretical foreigner that we haven't met. Because that allows us, that, that's doable for me. That's a practice I can do. Loving humanity is like, uh, you know, I can work at it. But treating the person in front of me uh, with the same care I would treat someone in, the, in front of me, uh, as the same care I treat someone in my family, that's something I can work on. And that's why I think it's a, there's something love, wonderfully um, practical about using this category of the stranger as the stranger in our midst, because it's a big world out there. And we'll work on the other stuff, but this is about how we treat the stranger in our midst, I think. Mm -hmm. and, and that's something I aspire to, too. Yeah? The stranger who's not of our tribe, what about the strangers who are of our tribe? How do you define your tribe? <laughs> right, well, I mean, if, but if we're, if we're, 
<clears throat> just let's say I describe, I define my tribe as Jews. Mm-hmm. Or I define my tribe as members of our, people who come to our congregation. Right, right. Well, some of them are very annoying. I know. <laughs> <laughs> we should all live and be well. <laughs> And some of them are considered other by right. the majority of right. the tribe. Right. So, for the purposes, so from a from a several generations ago, a couple generations ago, uh, if the if you are a member of the Jewish tribe, you automatically, and this is still true around the world, if you go some to some shul somewhere far far away, they will welcome you. So those, um, that category of the in-group and the out-group is still operative, but not nearly as much as it used to be. So I think the, that the, the functional, functionally for us, whoever feels like another is who we practice with. Do you know what I mean? Because the categories of who is in and who is out in our moment in time, is, there's a big gray area there. Right where it didn't used to be gray like it is now. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what I think is that it's gray. So practice with anyone who feels like the stranger to you. That that if they fall in that category and you you know then that's an opportunity. That's what I think when you say that. Yeah. Well, the the second stage of that my problem with the second stage of that is personal boundaries. Right. You know. Right. If I'm supposed to love them the way I love, I don't know, myself or my family. Right. I know. How, you know, what I does know, that mean? How the, far do I have to... That is, a gr- <laughs> that is a great question. It's not love. It's not love. It treats them well. It's kindness. It's not love. It's rarely about feelings in Judaism, mm. as I understand. That's true. Doesn't mm. tell me what to feel, tells me what to do. That's mm. true. Well, if you think of love as an action verb. Well, in the Torah, love is an action yeah. verb. When it says love your neighbor as yourself, it comes at the culmination of a whole chapter of what that consists of. Don't, don't slander them. If, uh, if they need assistance, you give it to them. Don't stand by if they're being, you know, it's like, so it's love, love is uh, in, in the Torah is an activity. There's no question about it. So we might think of it as kindness or as common decency, right? Because love can get, yeah, love has taken on many different yeah. connotations. Decency, right. Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> Respect. Uh, you know, Kurt Vonnegut, who turns out to be as flawed as anybody, um, uh, wrote in the introduction to one of his books, what the world needs is a little less love and a little more common decency. And so, uh, you know, because what's love come to mean in our era? Romantic love dominates. Eros dominates what we think of as love. And so maybe we need a different word, um, uh, which is how we treat one another with kindness and decency. And... That's a that's a better bar to aim for. Yeah. Even that is, I mean, I think. Oh, this is hard. Yeah. That's why Judaism, in my opinion, is a very challenging uh, set of instructions. Like your mission, if you choose to accept it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's an age thing too, because developmentally, kids go off to college, 
They go off in the world. I came from Portland, Oregon. I, ha I was a complete stranger. I had to make it on my own. My husband went back. Um, and I wasn't going to go back to my family. I was going to stay in this new land. And um, I have my daughter and my nephew. And my family in Oregon is like, okay, we communicate every year or so on Christmas time. But my, you know, in my 30s, I was so excited about going to New York City, where I'm meeting people, taking workshops, all these different things. And I think that's what our kids are supposed to do. And they make new allegiances and they come back, but yet they're gone. I think that that's a good thing, in a way, in a big way that they're finding a world much bigger. Well, in that sense, we're all Abraham and Sarah, and we're all on a, we all hear the call to leave your birthplace, your home, your father's house, your, and, and go to the land that I will show you. Yeah, so we're both, so one of the uh, paradoxes of all that is that on the one hand, we're all on a quest for something new. On the other hand, as we get older, we also understand that uh, we want a nest. <laughs> that's right that's right so uh, I a nest a nest um, yes Bob going back to love your neighbor like yourself if you translate it differently I think it becomes a little easier instead of saying you should love your neighbor like yourself if you translate it you should love your neighbor because he is like you. Nicely put. Kamocha. Kamocha can be translated as resembles you. Yeah, like you. Love your neighbor because he is like you. I love that translation. Thank you. That's very useful. Like me, Kamocha, Bailim, who is like you among all the uh, gods, it says in, at, when they're and the Song of the Sea. Carol? I'm just thinking of the power of in the midst because there are a lot of people in the room today who I don't know, some who I've never seen before, but I think I have a, a good sense that if I put my mind to it or if we were in a group together or if we had a task to do together that personalities aside because personalities can mess things up <laughs> but but I think it's it's the proximity in the midst is really 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 important mm -hmm. and 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 that takes doing those things getting to know someone finding what you have in common what you do and don't like about each other, all of it. But the better I know anybody, the more I know they are a human being like myself. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's operating on the principle of really on, on, on faith and experience that that's a human being right over there. And that uh, if I invest in that relationship, that common humanity will be revealed. Yeah, nice, nice, thank you. Yes, Ellen? I think everyone should have the experience of living in a place where you don't know the language. <laughs> oh, wow. It's mm -hmm. extraordinary. Because mm -hmm. then you really are a stranger. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, where you don't know the language. Have you done that? Yes. Where was that? Japan. And you're completely reliant on the kindness of strangers. Yes, right. <laughs> That's big. But did anyone know? Well, their word for stranger is gaijin, which is a foreigner, and it's a bad word. And you're not supposed to use it. Right. Barbarian. If for the uh, Greeks, was I understand if I re- understand was about the sound of their speech. They sounded like you know gibberish and mm-hmm. yeah. And the shape of our noses. <laughs> mm-hmm. All that stuff. That's why I'm saying we're wired that way. We're wired to identify with our in group, and so the Torah is asking us to transcend our wiring. That's what Judaism asks of us to do to transcend our wiring because we also have a higher nature. And we can, we can live our lives practicing interacting from that higher place rather than our more base, base part of the brain that obviously knows who's our own and wants to protect it. Uh, that doesn't mean we ever abandon that because we need our smarts. We need our, that, that's, our that's our street savvy. That's, that's the part that's not intellectual it's like you got you got to trust that but you also know that you can override it that that isn't the sum total of our uh, that that part of our brain isn't the sum total of who we are and the Torah insists that human nature is our ability to transcend that aspect of our nature and that's so one of my theories about why the commandment to uh, uh, care for the stranger is repeated more times than any other because it's almost impossible to do and it, um, so, you know, which, which rules got repeated the most in your house? <laughs> the ones that you weren't doing. So my theory about the Torah is that this commandment's repeated the most because it's the hardest one to remember um, and the hardest one to enact. And so you need constant reminder. Um, and what's the constant reminder that our liturgy gives to us all the time? We were strangers in the land of Egypt. We, God rescued us from bondage. God, da, da, da. Constant reminder that we too were strangers once. And uh, it's, all, it's everywhere that we've been liberated. Liberated for what? Not so we could recreate Egypt. Um, and uh, that becomes the, the symbolic kind of landscape. Are we going back to Egypt? Or are we heading towards the promised land? That is, that's the landscape of the Jewish, Jewish, you know, uh, what should I say, um, uh, metaphorical journey, life journey, our, our quest as an individuals and our quest as people. <coughs> um, so, let's start looking at some sources. Uh, I organized this uh, in three sections. And you can see, it's a lot of stuff. It's pretty cool. First, I have some background. Then I have all the times in the Torah where it says, the stranger and the citizen shall have one law. Meaning? that they are, they are subject to the same due process as 
your uh, members of the clan if they are the strangers living among you. What about the exceptions? What exceptions are you thinking of? Slavery. Right. There are some exceptions in status. A foreigner, a gare, uh, because of our understanding of ourselves as having been slaves in Egypt, Jewish, uh, Israelites are not permitted in the Torah to enslave one another. They can indenture another Israelite uh, for, with their debts required for six years, and in the seventh year, that Israelite is permitted to go free. And you don't let them go empty-handed. You have to furnish them so that they can start over again. And if they decide they don't want to be free, that life on your household is good, they can say, no, I want to be a servant in your household forever. And then they essentially become part of your household and their children and spouses and everything become part of your property. So remember, this is at a time when the idea that slavery was bad didn't exist. That indenturedness or slavery, was, it didn't exist. That wasn't a human concept. The Israelite concept was that cruel treatment of the slave mm -hmm. is wrong and bad. Mm -hmm. It was Pharaoh's cruelty that needed to be overcome, not the institution of slavery. Even in the Civil War, there were, there were Jews who held slaves who uh, had no compunction about it from a Jewish standpoint. Um, the idea that slavery should be abolished is only an idea of the modern era, right? And we're still fighting that battle. There are millions of slaves around the world still. So, but because the stranger wasn't an Israelite, um, you were allowed to hold them as a slave, uh, but you couldn't treat them cruelly. And though they didn't have recourse, the way an Israelite did, to be liberated, but they had the same status as a human being. So that is a distinction. The stranger was not the same as the Ezrach, which means the citizen, uh, but uh, the stranger had basic r dignity. Does that answer your question, Harris? Okay, this, this Torah does not come from a time when slavery was considered wrong and to be abolished. That's why, again, the only way to approach Jewish study, in my opinion, with any integrity, is to understand how our, our institutions evolve as greater understanding and consciousness evolves, but not in the time of the Bible. Uh, but what does exist as the seed of what we have now is that the stranger has to be treated as a full human being. Uh, even though, since they aren't part of the, of the corporate body of Judaism, they are not um, part of this idea that uh, a Jew, a, a, an Israelite, cannot, in perpetuity, against the other person's will, hold another Israelite. Absolutely not. Um, so, I saw a hand. Yeah. Yes. Well, so how would, a how would you define a slave as opposed to a servant? It's the same word in Hebrew. Uh, eved. Eved, in Hebrew, 
depending on the context and how you choose to translate it, means both servant and slave. Okay. Uh, so that's why when uh, uh, Moses comes to Pharaoh, he says, let my people go that they might serve me, speaking for God, in the wilderness. But it's the same word for slavery. Once again, the context is how you treat the person who is in, serv in servitude to you. Uh, if you treat them cruelly and take away their fundamental humanity, you've sullied God's creation. And so, um, yeah, there's, yeah, avodah means work, it means worship, it means, it means all those sorts of things. It means who you serve. So servitude is probably a better word. Yeah, yeah, isn't that an interesting difference in language there? Uh, okay, so uh, in the background section here, and God said unto Abram, this was an old-fashioned translation I was pulling from, know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them 400 years. So in Genesis 15, the Torah is setting us up by telling Abram, the first, the first Jew, the first that um, y that your your descendants are going to be in the status of Gerim, in a land not their own. Um, so it's, that's why I say it's in the DNA of the Torah. Those of you who study with me know that that doesn't mean I think that uh, Abram was told 400 years ahead of the fact that uh, given the prophecy that his, children, that his descendants would be um, slaves in the land of Egypt. That's what the story tells us. Oh, I heard the greatest definition of a myth um, in a book I'm reading right now. And it was a, in the introduction, and it was a child's definition of a myth. And the kid said, a myth is a story that's not necessarily true on the outside, but it's true on the inside. Oh, that's great. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. So I'm going to remember that. I heard one that said a myth is um, about reality. It's something that's not real about something that is real. Or so, so oh, right. Yeah. Good, good, good. So not true on the outside, but true on the inside. That doesn't mean I don't know. That doesn't mean I'm going to insist that there wasn't an historical Abraham, that God didn't speak to Abraham, that Abraham didn't know all this stuff. It's like, I don't know. However, for my purposes, I'm much more interested in reading the Torah as a literary creation, which is telling me something that's true on the inside. And whether it's true on the outside or not is much, much, much less important to me. I do not care if someone found a bit of an ark on Mount Ararat. Right? It's like, I mean, I just don't care. It's just the plot. Uh, it's the, the, what's, the, what's, the, what's true on the inside about the Noah story? What's true on the inside is that humanity, from, the, from the, our classic Jewish perspective, humanity had sullied creation with our immorality. And the creator could not tolerate that. And wiped out everything, but, out of, but gave us a fresh start. That's what the story is like teaching me. And so, bye Gail, take care of yourself.
so again, as we establish sort of how I discuss this, I'm looking for what's true on the inside. And therefore, I look at more as more literarily than historically or linearly. Uh, so somehow, literarily, we're getting like in the introductory chapters this understanding that being a stranger in a strange land is going to be fundamental to our self, our, our, our identity. Um, now, there's another pre, pre, what do you call it when something is? Precondition? Uh, precursor, it's not precondition, it's like, it's presaging. Presage, to kind of give a, give a foretaste of. And that's what happens in the stories of the patriarchs all the time, and the matriarchs. And in Genesis 16, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, bore him no children. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And we've talked about this before. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold now, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. Go in, I pray thee, into my handmaid. It may be that I shall be builded up through her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her handmaid, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan, and gave her to Abram, her husband, to be his wife. Um, so if you look at the word Hagar, it has... a uh, the word stranger embedded in it. Ger. Right. Hager would mean the stranger. And who is the stranger? An Egyptian who is in servitude to Abram and Sarai. So because the Torah operates clearly with a, a what goes around comes around, that if you mistreat, it will come to you. And again, that's literarily, that's how so many great stories function. Not that we, in our limited lives, can see all the cause and effect. The rabbis talk about this all the time. They say, you know, the righteous, why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? We don't know. <laughs> but hopefully we're trusting that it's all going to come out in the end. right? Because in our perspective, but in the perspective of a great myth, we can see those patterns and they reinforce our deep sense that this is what happens. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, so because Sarai and, and, and Abram mistreat the Egyptian stranger, right, what's going to happen? She gives birth. Sarai says, I can't stand having her around here. She makes Abram kick her out. And Hagar, the Egyptian, is forced to... Uh, uh, thinks her child's going to die of thirst, and then an angel of God provides them with a well and an oasis. And uh, so I think that the story of Hagar is an intentional presaging of the later us being Gerim in Egypt. You follow what I'm, I'm saying? Um, and I can give you other examples of how I see these sort of things coming up in the story of Abraham, but this is the one I wanted to share with you. Uh, so, so again, just in the very fundamental beginnings of the story, where we're getting this like these clues, these these subtle cues about the whole thrust of the Torah 
which is that we were strangers, and because we were strangers, we know the feelings of the stranger, and therefore we cannot oppress the stranger. Um, when Abraham says, when he needs, when after Sarah dies, Abraham says to the people of uh, um, the, the, the Hittites, uh, what's his name, Ephron, yeah. uh, in the land of, uh, in Hebron, in, Ma, in uh, Kiryat Arba, in the Maratha, in the Judean hills where he's encamped. He says, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. What's the Hebrew of that? 23, 4. Ger v'toshav, Anochi. Yeah, Ger v'toshav. I am a uh, uh, stranger and a toshav, a, res- a, 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 a sojourner. I'm not part of your tribe. Um, please. Toshav means somebody staying there. A resident. A resident. But not a citizen. Not a member of the group. Right. Um, give me a possession of a burying place with you that I might bury my dead out of my sight. Pardon me? Abraham. 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 When, he's re- when he needs to bury Sarah. Um, and then, when um, uh, Tzipporah and Moses bear a son when he is living in Midian with Jethro, and she bore a son and he called his name Gershom. <coughs> For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land, which was a good book. <laughs> I have been a stranger in a strange land. Um, let's see, Exodus 2.22, what's the Hebrew of that one? I have been a resident alien in a foreign land. Um, and so it's almost as if Moses is... Eg- Moses grows up in Pharaoh's palace. It would seem following the um, kind of um, narrative logic of the Torah that Moses has to experience being a landless person, a refugee, uh, in the land of Midian where he has fled for his life. He has to experience that in order. He's grown up in Pharaoh's palace. He's not a stranger in the halls of power. Right? He has access. He has to go experience this other condition in order to hear God's voice. So if I was going to do a more naturalistic rendering rather than the burning bush story, say it's all happening inside his conscience, that out of that experience he remembers and realizes that he, there, there are all these Israelites that he knows he's related to, uh, uh, that he has to go back that they can't endure that condition any longer. But not until he had experienced it himself of what it means to be um, stateless, a stateless wanderer. There are so many right now. It, it, it's too much for me. Do you know what I mean? I, I, would, I would be lying. It's too much for me to think about the thousands of people coming in rubber boats to Greek islands and to the shore of shores of Italy and it's like um, not to mention the stateless people who so but the aspiration is still there Judaism is not here to make us comfortable um, 
And uh, I mean, it's a wonderful, joyous tradition, but if we take it at its heart, it's asking a lot of us. I just want to, I saw there was a photo in the New York Times, I think it was yesterday or the day before, of the Rohingya refugees. Oh, yeah. oh. And it looked like an it looked like an etching to me. It looked like a drawing or an etching. I'm telling you, I looked at it over and over and over again because I was I couldn't believe it was a Did photograph. Did you blow it up? Well, no, I I, I, I get it actually in print. I'm oh, not fashion, okay. but you yeah, know. Oh, hurrah! That was an amazing I, photo. I, I, I yes. couldn't. You know, it was sort of like this is happening now. This is not a historical etching from the it's Goya. 1800s. It's Goya, the, the terrorism war. It's just incredible. So there we are. We can't close ourselves off from it, even though it's so much of it is beyond our ability to influence. Um, and the Torah commands it of us. And how is that working in Israel right now? With the oh, in Israel, oh, there's a, this has gotten coverage finally in the, in the U.S. It's horrible. There are forty to 60,000 African asylum seekers who, who I've, have you met Dawit? Who is Pauline Tamari's adopted? Uh, he's Eritrean. He he's Eritrean. Mm -hmm. Eritrea, Somalia, Sudan are failed states. Uh, there's no, there's starvation. There's no social organization, and people are conscripted and killed constantly. So mostly men, young men, uh, make their way. They hear that Israel is a stable place where they won't be killed. I mean, that's the. That's yeah. the level we're dealing with here, mm -hmm. just a place where they won't be killed. And so over the last 10, 10 years or so, uh, um, thousands of them um, risked their lives crossing Sudan and Egypt. Egyptian soldiers, soldiers generally had the instruction to shoot to kill. The way they would get through Egypt is by paying all their money to Bedouin smugglers with no guarantee that the Bedouin smugglers wouldn't just put, throw them in a hole and then call their relatives on the cell phone and demand more ransom. It's just, the stories are horrific. And those that make it, made it to the Israeli border could walk over and they would be not killed. And so, mo so about forty to 60,000 did this. And this creates a problem for a nation, right? Uh, because it's not a simple issue. Uh, but of these, these tens of thousands of Eritreans, Somalians, Sudanese, mostly Eritreans and Somalians and some Ethiopians, um, most of them make their way to South Tel Aviv, which is this polyglot melting pot because there are many foreign workers in Israel, Thai people, Filipino, um, other Africans who are there working and then who simply you know, stay, raise their kids, the kids speak Hebrew, they celebrate Purim. It's a fascinating thing to walk around South Tel Aviv. I was just there, because Timna's living in South Tel Aviv. Um, the, the Israeli government didn't know what to do. So they put up a border fence, a, a, a tighter border fence between Egypt and Israel. As a nation, I understand that behavior. But now they have 60,000 people who are still seeking asylum. The government has been horrible towards them. Um, they created a detention center in the middle of the desert where several thousand of them are. And uh, they have no papers. So they all work 
They work in the hotels. They, they work all over Tel Aviv. Uh, they're undocumented, right? Uh, and um, uh, the current plan of the government, I would say under the cover, uh, you know, the Trump administration's policies give cover to everybody to do this because what government wants these people in their country from the government's narrow interests. Do you know what I mean? And so now they've been making deals with Uganda to basically send Uganda money to take these people back. But the stories from Uganda are bad, and Rwanda as well. That what, there's nothing to go back to, and they're not welcome there once they're there. So the, so the government is in no way following the Jewish um, ethics of what to do. I mean, they've now limited, they've now found a way to stop the inflow, which I, I really, I can't argue with. Um, uh, I could argue with, but I understand it. It's not a, but now that they, but what are they going to do with the people who are there? The good news is that there is a, tremendous amount of resistance among the Israeli public to this policy. All over Tel Aviv there were posters, the kind you see here, that say in Hebrew, you're welcome here to the refugees. There have been demonstrations. There, it doesn't know if they're going to have any impact, but the, the beautiful thing about it, and this is again what's special about Israel, is that the signs say in Hebrew, we were strangers in the land of Egypt. Right? So they cite these sources to stand up for what they think is the right thing to do. So that's what's going on in Israel. Now, aren't they offering like uh, $3,000 in a plane ticket to leave? Yeah. And then yeah. you have 60, yeah. and you have 60 days or something. Yeah, right. Where are they going to go? Where they well, they, it, when they get there... Israel has to cut deals with the African right. countries... So they're not just giving them money, they're giving the African government's money too. And yeah, it's a solution, I suppose, but there are other solutions. Israel, these people are by and large working. Um, many of them have been there long enough that they've married and had children. It's a better solution than what Trump is doing. Uh, maybe. I mean, Trump just tossing them out. Right, right. Um, so yeah, you're right, maybe it is a better solution. But it's pretty clear that Israel can absorb 60,000 of these yeah. people. Israel's a country of 8 million people. I so, love the pilots said they wouldn't fly. Hmm? Yeah, that's pilots. Right. Some of the pilots well, said they wouldn't fly those flights. But it won't have that impact because just, just only a small portion of those pilots that said they wouldn't fly. I know. All I'm saying is that fortunately there is a conscientious uh, protest movement in Israel which is very active. And that's encouraging. What can I say? Um, uh, so that's what's going on in Israel right now. The encouraging part is that the protest, the protesters, are citing Torah, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's the part that that uh, is I found encouraging and heartening. I signed some petitions. I said I'm not a citizen. They said just sign it anyway. I said you're a stranger. Miriam, it's, are there any like northern countries where people? Well, racism is a big problem here. Because are they being accepted? Racism's a big problem. Um, and uh, the problem is that when the Soviet yes. Jews mm -hmm. got permission 
from the Soviet government to go to, to leave, Israel took every single one of them, hundreds of thousands of whom were not Jewish, but who claimed like, oh, I have a Jewish cousin, right? And they just wanted to get the hell out of there. And because they were educated, because they were white, um, Israel took them in. And they were educated their way. Western education. They had professional degrees. They had highly technical. Yes, right. They they, they had they were literate, educated engineers, doctors. The way, they the, the way any country would want. Um, and so uh, there is a definitely a double standard based on race. Now, put that in context: Israel and Europe, right now. Right, Israel's not worse than any country in this regard. In fact, I think Israel is doing just about as you know, well or as poorly as any other of these developed nations in dealing with massive transient populations right now who are fleeing their countries not just from government failure but also from climate crises. Right? We ain't seen nothing yet. We ain't seen nothing yet. And uh, uh, so... Um, and I don't have any wise predictions either, by the way. I don't, all I know is it's like this is just this is the the tip of the melting iceberg, shall we say? Um, and um, uh, yeah, climate crises are going to force more and more populations. Uh, Millions so, of people have moved from in the Sahel in uh, northern Africa south towards Mali and Guinea. Right, because so, the desertification is expanding. There's no water. Hundreds of miles. A year. Kenya's having a similar problem. It's like, it's we're we're facing disasters that we don't even know how to yeah. explain, uh, uh, imagine, unfortunately. And uh, what can I say? Uh, what I can say is, we can't change that as individuals. And I'm interested in the way Europe. Uh, the progressive forces, the progressive ideologies in, Euro in Europe, reason that we have to take these people in. I have deep respect for that. And as a Jew, I'm really interested in Israel. In other words, I'm not going to say Israel's doing it worse than anybody because they're not. But I'm really interested in the fact that Jewish, that a Jewish state, there are enough people in that Jewish state who are who appreciate the thrust of Jewish teaching that they're willing to stand up for these people. That's, for me, very heartening. And it comes from our Jewish foundation. And so that's kind of how, you know, my interest is, that's, my, that's where I'm really, really interested. But my goodness. Um, boy, that's, a, that's an important thing to discuss. Thank you. Um, how is the, can we, sh I'm part of an organization in Israel called Rabbis for Human Rights. Because Rabbis for Human Rights insists that a Jewish state has to follow Jewish teachings about the sanctity of life. And they have influence, some, right? Um, uh, and uh, the Israeli government is not all bad. Um, but, again, under the cover of, the, um, of Trumpism um, and the weakening of democracy in so many places, the forces in the Israeli government that are happy to assert themselves into that vacuum are doing it. You know, there's no question about it. Um, anyhow.
<sighs> okay, so back to Moses. These are all pertinent. It's all pertinent. Oh, so those who don't know Dawit, Pauline Tamari, when she was on our trip to Israel three years ago, four? Four. Chat, started chatting with one of the hotel workers in our hotel in Tel Aviv. His name was Dawit. And actually, it was many of them, and she would have brought them all over. If she could. Oh, you're right. It was many of them. And she actually organized an impromptu meeting with our group to meet and talk to some of these guys who were high school graduates, who couldn't do anything in their country, who were threatened and were afraid they were going to get killed, and so threatened that they were willing to leave their families. Again, think about refugees. How desperate do you have to be to leave your families? You know, when people say to me, why didn't the Jews of Germany know what was going on? It's like, oh, come on. It's your home. It's your family. It's your everything. You're not just going to leave unless you happen to be an unusual person who's willing to take that risk. And it's the same here. It's like, this is my home. This is my language. This is my church. This is my family. This is my country. You have to be so desperate. And brave. And brave. I mean, yeah. it takes a, a special person to yeah. be a I'd like to recommend a book that I read recently. I heard a review on NPR. It's a young adult novel, but I loved it. And if, if any of you have young adults, it's called Refugee. And it's three stories that, you know, the chapters alternate. <clears throat> Set one present time Syria. And it, of course, it, it, each one focuses on a family. And the main character is a you know, 12, 13-year-old child. But it's about the whole family. One Syrian family, one Cuba in the 90s, and one Jewish family in, um, who end up on the St. Louis ship. Um, 39. Something, yeah. Um, and it does not soft-pedal it at all, this Wow. It, it's, just, it's just a great book, you know. Okay, it's called Refugee. It's called Refugee. I don't remember the author's name, but it's easy enough to find. Recent, recent book, and I was just just blown away. I mean, bad, bad things happen. So, you know, in a young adult novel, to have that amount of reality. Well, if young adults are reading The Hunger Games, they can read this, yeah. you know. I mean, these are all based on true Right, this is, this is our current dystopia, not the future one. Yeah, mm -hmm. so how did she get, I forgot the story, how did she get Zoe to get here? Oh, so some of you may be familiar with the, the ins and outs of the immigration system here. It is virtually impossible to get a visa. If you wonder why so many people in this country are undocumented, it's because it was impossible to get a visa. It's not that it's, uh, it's not that they're sneaky, Right. They had no other recourse. And there were lotteries, and there are, there's all kinds of, you know. And basically, Pauline is rather persistent. <laughs> and um, through incredible, dogged persistence, managed also luck. Because there was, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, a lottery managed to get the weed a visa. And, and it's a student visa. It's a student it's not, visa. He, when he finishes school, he doesn't know what's going to happen to him. That's oh, right. Really? He came here. He's now, what, 30 years old? Oh. And he's resumed his education, and he's studying to be a nurse. I thought it was permanent resident. No. Um, 
No. So you probably read about the, uh, there was an article in the New York Times about this um, chemistry teacher at a college in Kansas whose uh, H-1B uh, visa ran out, and he has three American kids and a wife, and ICE has rounded him up and sent him to a detention center in Hawaii. He's going to be deported back to India. Um, That's stupid. So. Uh, I think he's actually free right now. Really? Yeah, they're, they're going to listen to his case. Because it, because, but only because it was in the newspaper. Only because it was in the newspaper. Because it's, it's very... Because it makes him look bad. Yeah. Um, how do you, when power is being abused, one of the ways to uh, do something about it is public shaming. However, if someone has no shame, then you're... No, then we're in big trouble, right? Right, what do you do then? So, um, yes, public shaming... Is, is one of the recourses that you can do when somebody's, you know, not, when somebody's behaving mis- poorly or cruelly. Um, so, once a, have a free press. so once again, we come back to the Jewish imperative. This is an imperative. It's not just a commandment. It's about what our very DNA as our self-understanding as a people. But... It's so easy and desirable not to pay attention to this stuff, right? Once you're comfortable. What does Deuteronomy says, say? And when you have entered the good land that God has given you, and you have built many houses, and uh, you have fine crops and uh, much wealth, beware, lest you forget that you didn't earn this on your own, that it was the Creator who brought you out of servitude, and allowed you to gain the status. You know, what can I tell you? This is the Torah. Because it says it over and over and over again, because who wants to think about this? Um, and uh, that's why it seemed like a pertinent subject for our moment, because Judaism is unflinching on this subject. So, we said in Exodus 2.22, she bore a son, he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And then it's repeated. The next time we see Gershom, (coughs) it appears that when Moses heads back to Egypt, it's not clear where his kids are. Because once it seems Tzipporah goes with him because she rescues his life on the way. But we don't hear about his sons at all. I thought she, mm-hmm. circumcised, she circumcised them first. Oh, she circumcises the okay. son. That's right. So, but, it, it's not, but even that's not clear. You're right. You're right. We don't hear about Gershom again until Mount Sinai when Moses has brought the people there and Jethro, his father-in-law, greets them with Tzipporah and her children. So we don't know. It's like, well, it's not clear what's going on to me. But that's when Gershom's name is explained again. She, and uh, Moses' father-in-law took Tipora, Moses' wife, after he had sent her away. So that would, that would actually make sense. Make sense. When he got to Egypt, he sent them back to, to their dad, to, to grandpa's house. Yeah. Of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. 
And the uh, final sort of like foundational text that I want to give is in um, uh, uh, Parshat Bahar. Let's actually look at it. Um, you'll find it on page. Um, oh, you're so fast. 851. This is in this crucial chapter at the climax of Leviticus that says that when you do enter the land, every seven years you have to let the land rest and you have to forgive debts and you have to give people a fresh start. And every 50th year is the Jubilee year when anyone who's lost their land holding can go back to their land. And it explains that you don't own the land. You own the, um, you lease it from God. And you own the um, produce of the land. That's yours. But you don't own the land. It's just not how it works. And again, this is a, this is a classic kind of indigenous understanding of sacred earth, right? And, uh, but the language is very, Jew- is very, is is consistent with the Torah because in verse 23 it says you cannot sell the land beyond reclaim in other words it doesn't belong to you forever for the land is mine says the creator you are gerim vitoshavim with me you are residents you are sojourners and strangers here on this land but not strangers like it's your it's your home, but it's not yours. Um, the earth belongs to God and everything that's in it. So this, this group of rabbis that you belong to, this yeah. rabbis for... Human rights. Okay. How do they deal with this, with the Jubilee year and you don't own the land? Well, um, the Jubilee year uh, went the way of... Um, no, no, it went the way of, uh, it faded into history in the period of the Roman Empire. Because as economies became more urbanized um, and uh, complex, and it wasn't an agrarian society anymore, they couldn't be enforced. And so uh, the Jubilee year stands as a principle, but one that can't be enacted anymore. Now, two years ago was the Shemitah year, the sabbatical year, which there are ways to engage with the idea of sabbatical, like forgiving debts. That's something a modern society can do. And hydroponics. Hydropo- the, right. There's, there's, the, the, let's talk about this for a little bit. The Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox world is trying to literally practice the Shemitah year, which is, uh, oh, this is complicated. They, they don't, it says you cannot farm your land in the sabbatical year. The way they do it is more legalistic than mm-hmm. fundamental. Because mm-hmm. what they'll do, for instance, is lease 
sell their field for a one-year, one-dollar lease to a non-Jewish entity, but keep, but keep, but keep using it. That's not the spirit of the law, right? They will figure out how to grow things in not soil, and then eat that during the sabbatical year. That's not in the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law is that you let the land rest. But no. hydroponics does let the land rest. That's true. So hydroponics is different than selling your land to a non-Jew so you can keep farming it. But again, I understand the difficulty because modern economies, how are you going, if, if, you're, if your produce, the flowers you grow, if you stop growing them for a year to the international market, you're out of business. So there doesn't seem to be a way to enforce the sabbatical law anymore in our incredibly complex economy. But the spirit of the sabbatical year can be enacted. Hydroponics is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how we respect the land, in other words, how we treat it sustainably, because that's part of the idea of Shemitah, but also the forgiveness of debts. That's, even if we can't let the land rest, a, a society could, and one of the initiatives in Israel, oh, thank you. <laughs> One of the initiatives in Israel among some, non, some non-profit social service and lobbying organizations was to create a loan fund in Israel and an agreement that people who have debts under a certain amount could have their debts forgiven. And they lobbied the banks and they, what a beautiful concept, right? That's in the spirit of um, giving people a fresh start, which is the idea of the sabbatical year. Um, but in practice, Diane, there's no, sabbatical, there's no jubilee year. But the principle's still there. The land is mine. You don't own the earth. And that consciousness still could pervade our, our mentality. And that's, so, so Jewish thinkers are using these passages in Torah to, to be, be the Jewish foundation of sustainability, the idea of sustainability. Right, that uh, it's not that we can't just suck all the resources from the earth forever. That's not we weren't we were we have not been given that authority. Um, yes, Miriam. Does that mean that let's say if I I uh, farm a hundred acres? Yeah. Okay. If I farm, if I rotate around. Yeah. And leave every year. So every seven years, this plot. Thank you. That would be in the spirit of Shemitah, and yes. Then, and, then and I'm sure some people have adopted that practice. Because they say rotating crops. Right. That, that's right, there's some ancient ecological wisdom just from people who farm the land. They, they would give their land a year of rest. And they would collectively, communally store their food and they could pick whatever grew on the land, and it was a sabbatical. That's where the word comes from. That's, the, that's what it's called, uh, Shabbaton, for the land and for the people. Beautiful concept, huh? Did they talk about that when we were in the kibbutz? No. Didn't. We didn't cover that subject. They're not, when we were on the kibbutz in the south of Israel, their business, their, their agricultural stuff are businesses. It's like, and uh, it's not clear that they've embraced that in any way, no. I mean, they have this algae factory. That doesn't even count as like, uh, it's, all in, it's all in tubes above the ground. It's like, 
It's fascinating because there's so few things that grow there. Anyhow, um, yeah. Curious, is there any um, thought around it says, um, for ye are strangers and settlers with me? And mm-hmm. There's something about that word with, but because it, it, it's basically saying I'm I'm a stranger too. It's God saying I'm a stranger. Too. Oh, I never thought it that way. And I'm wondering. <coughs> I'll tell you what it makes me think of. <clears throat> Not that God is a stranger, but God is with the stranger, because one of the things you read over and over in Torah is, like Moses says, "What do I say to Pharaoh?" And God's answer is, "I will be with you." That's not an answer of what to say. <laughs> when Jacob is running away from uh, home and has the dream of the ladder, God says, wherever you go, I will be with you. Jacob is also about to become a uh, sojourner. And uh, so what's clear in the Torah, what's, what's consistent and absolutely fundamental in the Torah is that God is with the sojourner the stranger, the widow, the orphan, the poor. God is with the people who don't have a uh, power base. So that's the imadi. Not that God is a stranger, but that God is with the stranger, which is the only promise, basically the basic promise we get in the Torah, that God will be with us. Although, although it does say, I, I am with me, it's, it's sort of reversed out. You're right, it is reversed it's sort of, out. It's, so it's, it's, I wonder if there's just some thinking around it. Cause to well, me that's even I hear you. I hear you. And my reaction is thinking of all the times right. when it's in the other direction. Right. Uh, so that would be my, that's my first reaction. Um, but you could have fun with that, definitely. <laughs> so our fundamental relationship to uh, even our home is that we're just passing through, um, which is true. Um, we wish, we want it to be, you know, permanent, but nothing, nothing is. So uh, if we understand the impermanence of our own existence, once again, not just as strangers in a strange land, but as sojourners in our own land, Again, it's a call to empathy, a practice. We talk a lot about spiritual practices right now. And you practice this awareness so that if somebody wanders through your field of vision, you're ready. You're ready. This is, you're, you don't have to go through all these machinations to say, no, okay, hello, can I help you? <laughs> We're all doing retail, <laughs> can I help you? <laughs> um, so, uh, so in that context, <coughs> excuse me, oh, any other thoughts or questions or comments right this minute? participating in a conference call with an organization called Ben the Ark, which is a Jewish social justice organization. Like, I hate conference calls. Uh, but, you know, but anyway, um, because they have a, um, a, um, 
uh, what do you call it, initiative going on right now uh, in cities, and they're working on one in Kingston uh, to help to lobby for an act to make it easier for the the dreamers, make it possible for the dreamers to stay put, right? There's a lot of energy for that in this country. Uh, and they're calling it Let My People Stay. <laughs> and uh, I just feel like I have to participate because of this. Darn. <laughs> I want to watch the Olympics. You know. And so I just don't want you to think it's like, uh, it's hard. How much energy have I got? You know, and I'm, it's, but I'm doing what I can. So my colleague, Avi Winokur in, in Philadelphia, who's a really great rabbi. Moved to Philadelphia. He's the guy who married us. Oh, Avi married you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you sent this to him. Oh, in Manhattan. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so he's been wow. in Philadelphia for a long time. Oh, wow. And, uh, um, I'm on, we're on a listserv, you know, where we share our ideas with each other and our thoughts and opinions and complaints. <laughs> a lot of kvetching on the rabbinic listserv. Um, not really. It's mostly looking for good advice. He posted this idea yesterday where he's going to convene, and I think I'm going to do this at, don't know when, but where he's going to convene some gatherings in his synagogue so people can think about just one or two things that they want to do, that they feel they can manage, where because so many people feel so overwhelmed that they don't know where to start, and that's how it was. That's what it makes me think of. It's like hey, I'll, I'll I'll see if I can help with this, and I'll see if I can help with that. So we're going to talk about that because we're all we're all stretched pretty thin. <sighs> Gosh, you know I teach all this to listen to myself. So work out some things. Huh? Yeah, always. I am not. I am. I am the processor who processes with other people, and that is the way I am. Okay, we have a few more minutes. So the next next couple of pages are all the times in the Torah where it talks about how we have to treat the sojourner with the same law, the same respect under the law. Their status may be a little different, as we described about slavery, but the, they're still, if they are mistreated as a slave, they are still have recourse. Right? Um, let's read a few of them. Exodus 12. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, that soul shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a sojourner or one that is born in the land. How interesting. So, in this iteration, in Exodus, you can be part of the community of Israel, even if you're a sojourner as long as you are living amongst and participating in the communities. So it seems pretty clear that there was a status of resident alien, right? Well, Who pays to... pays? person ate No, if they or an Israelite ate chumetz, they're subject to the same consequences. 
But think behind that, Diane. It means that they're being included yeah. in the Passover. Right. Otherwise, they wouldn't be mentioned here. Right. So if they decide not to be. But it's no different than an Israelite. Right. They have the same. It's fascinating to think that uh, these <clears throat> these resident aliens, these green card holders. Let's call them that. Yeah. These green card holders. They're paying taxes. They have work permits. They're part of the co collective. They're subject to the same laws and the same privileges. I think it's pretty cool. They have standing. They have standing. That's what it is. That's the word I'm looking for. <coughs> well, it's interesting because, let's say, during Passover, when um, people choose to eat non-leavened, it's like we kind of try to stay together so that we won't be seduced or... It's like we have that, um, um, there is a community support that goes on of eating uh, matzahs. That's right. And kvetching and whatever it is. Well, if someone comes into the circle and say, doesn't know what the hell is going on, or say like, oh gee, I, I've been eating love and bread, um, there is an, an awkward feeling. I mean, the first time I was introduced to it, I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> I don't know how they entered this. Right. But then I was brought into it, and now I participate. Right. And it's like, so it's, and, and yeah, at first I thought, as Diane thought, and I said, well, you know, there is a spatial, uh, uh, a territorial energy about those who, who, um, who, the eight days try not to eat, mm -hmm. and what goes on. So I was just thinking it in that way. But this this provision for excommunication. Yep. Then then you realize okay, you are definitely out. You're out. You know. And then how do you treat that person? Um, well, that's interesting because we're in a situation. Uh, it says, cut off from the congregation of Israel. Well, that's what I was trying to describe. I felt, I felt uninvolved and unconnected. Right. So there's two ways to think about it. You're thinking about the emotional no. and, so, and social element of it, which is a big part of this. Um, what does it mean? The Torah never really says. How do you cut someone off? Um, and it also says, that person shall surely die in bunches of places. Yeah. Yeah. So, or be stoned to death. Or be stoned to death. And Judaism, as it evolves, as you know, eliminates those consequences. It, it, it uh, legislates them out of, out of reality. And so what does it mean? I have to read this again as, um, I don't know what it would mean in practice. Because certainly excommunication has been, and shunning is something yeah. practiced by societies all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. So we can either think that that person was shunned, or... We can think that it's more of a yeah, kind of metaphorical disconnect. Uh, um, maybe it's shunning. I don't know, Diane. Or you can think of it as that's how important yes. the society believes it to be, that everybody participate in this. So there's, there's, there's real consequences if you don't, but it's not really about the consequences. 
It's about the joining in. Well, actually, I have another thought, which is, what is this referring to? What is the rite of Passover? It's when we collectively reaffirm mm -hmm. that we were strangers mm -hmm. in the land of Egypt. It's our fundamental identity. So if you don't participate, you are, in effect, you know, this is, this is so important to the re... Uh, um, the, the, you know, because on Passover we eat the matzah and we, to the re-embodiment of our fundamental identity. And it seems that the sojourner is allowed to participate in this. Ellen? Well, you say, you shall be cut off, but it's not like nobody is doing that to you by refusing to participate. You, it's a consequence mm. of... Mm. That's how the rabbis understood it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's how the... So we have this verse from the Torah. The rabbis understood it as that mm -hmm. because... It says, what does the wicked child say? Right. What does this mean to, to you? you? And the rabbis say, to you and not to me. And they say, that person would not have left Egypt because they didn't identify <coughs> with the liberation. Yeah. They would have stayed and said, geez, what are they? Okay, so long. <laughs> so the rabbis also understood it as a self, a removing yourself from the story. And the story has a moral. The moral is, you are strangers, God is on the side of the powerless and the stranger, and therefore you must be on the side of the powerless and the stranger. So I think that's much more important than what the mechanism for being shunned in ancient Israel was, whether that was even meant here at all. Um, the way Jewish tradition takes it is the way Ellen takes it, and it goes right into our Haggadah says, yeah, if you don't identify with, with, this, pro with this story, you won't be part of the liberation. You know, the revolution's happening and you're not in it. Mm -hmm. There's also the, um, what we were talking about before, of the stranger as myself, and myself as the stranger. So the one who is denying that is denying sort of the basic principle of this common humanity of right we are we have we are all strangers and we are all the same and I am you and you are me to whatever extent that we can uh, that's right I agree I think that when you take this line of uh, these values and you follow them out they will lead you to that final destination yeah that we're all one yeah thank you yes People in my extended family who have been excommunicated. By your family? By the family. Either from marrying outside the religion or one, one cousin for wanting to change his name. Mm hmm. And it's cruel. I mean, they are out of the family. That's right. We all have stories like that. Thank you. That's how you do it. You cut off contact. They married, they married a, a, a Gentile, and that's it. I'm saying Kaddish. Yeah. That's right. That happened plenty. Um, uh, from the perspective of we, we're living in a moment and in a community where we are allowing for a giant gray area in which you can be part in, uh, you know, and that's how we're playing it. But there, there are plenty of other communities and certainly not that many generations ago where those boundaries were hard and fast. 
I'm not claiming that the fact that our boundaries are so porous is good or bad. It's just, I feel it's a response to the world as it is. It's a functional response, you know. So um, I don't want to draw a line in the sand that has no pur meaning or purpose. Uh, uh, is it better? Is it worse? I don't even know. <laughs> Where I'm just, I'm just trying to adapt. But yeah, so um, it's cruel. So uh, that was making me think of something else, which is um, uh, other ways. Oh, the thought escaped me. It wasn't just intermarriage, it was um, changing, the name. changing their name, but who knows why families do what they do, right? right. And, uh, what do you want to say, Anne? Is, is that those who um, mourn, you know, cut you off like that, is that how they interpret this? Yeah, it's an action that somebody has to take. Right, but it's, it's not that what you've chose, well, I guess it's... I'm trying to see how long have they been doing that for? <laughs> like, like if you married outside of your tribe, uh, centuries. 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 So they sat. I mean, those are the things they did, like sit, mourn, sit, yeah. shiver. In the pre-modern, in the pre-modern era, there was no gray status. You were either part of your community or you converted and joined the other team. There wasn't any. Uh, only, only starting with Spinoza in Amsterdam, Amsterdam was the first city in which, in when are we talking about, the 1600s? Yeah, 17th century. 17th century. Amsterdam was the first city due to its being a capitalist, uh, being driven by capital and not by, you know, religion, um, was the first place where someone could remain part of the community even if they weren't affiliated with Spinoza was the first, the Jewish community put him, in, put him into excommunication, excommunication oh, yeah. but he never converted. He never, he was the first known human being to live without a religious community, when everybody else in the city would belong to something. But it was possible. It was possible. For, and so it. that's considered to be the beginning of modernity, where individuals have status separate from the group they're a part of. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that is hard for us to understand as moderns, what the world was like before that. But only it's only a modern conception that I have standing as an individual, regardless of whether I belong to a particular group or not. Um, and uh, it's a giant change. Giant change, yeah. Um, it's not unusual because I'm growing up Methodist to marry a Presbyterian or a Lutheran. Right. All the, all the porousness of our boundaries is a result of our lifetimes here. Yes. Right? The, the, it, back in the 20s or 30s, if someone married some out, that was an outlier. That was 2% of the folks, right? Now it's almost everybody. Uh, now it's, not an, it's just what it is, except for the communities that have managed to put up enough, enough uh, boundaries around themselves that they, they, they can uh, mostly maintain their own co cohesiveness, yeah. That's what made Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, that's why, yeah. that's why Fiddler was of, of its moment right. in the 60s. That's right, we were just starting to experience that. Our acceptance, the fact, we're doing, Carol and I are doing, here's the advertisement, we're doing our tour of Broadway service oh. tomorrow night and Saturday morning. Oh, yay. Yeah, it's in the email this week. I'll send out another email reminder tomorrow. And Fiddler, the fact that this was the first Jewish-themed musical. The Jews had written all the musicals, <laughs> yeah. but this was the, the first big 
hit Jewish-themed musical that spoke to something in everybody was, was our sign that we had arrived. And the story that shows that we've arrived is that our boundaries are starting to break down. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's a really great point. Wow. It's a really great point. You only have to look at sports fans to understand that there's something fundamental in humans, well, in men anyway, <laughs> that need to identify... With a team. With something, you know. That's right, which gets back to our reptilian brain and our higher, higher awareness, which is that that's fundamental, and Judaism insists that we have to transcend that. Insists. Otherwise, we're not fulfilling uh, the most repeated commandment in the Torah. And we're not paying attention to our fundamental origin story, which is supposed to help us identify with a stranger from the story we tell about ourselves. That's my point about this. It's so, we have a lot to be proud of here, but also a lot to be challenged by, which is a lot to be proud of. <laughs> yes? Um, I saw a fiddler on the roof in <coughs> East Berlin. In, in 90, East Berlin? East Berlin in 1981. Oh my goodness. And people came out of that crying. And I didn't understand why they were crying. I mean, they're Germans. And it was because they identified with the Jews in Fiddler on the Roof because the Soviets had pushed them off their land. Right. Had displaced them. In Japanese, it's a giant yes. hit. Yeah, well, it, it tells a universal like, story of the 20th century, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay, uh, we're going to quit now. <laughs> uh, yeah, don't get up, everybody. We're going to make a couple of announcements. Tonight at 6.30 in New Falls at the Community Center is I Am Not Your Negro. And then oh, the James Baldwin, the James Baldwin documentary. Oh, nice. And where is it? It's at the community center in Newport, the Jewish community center. The Jewish community center in New Paltz. Tonight at 6.30. Yeah, I have to see that movie. I know. I just have to make the time to see it. What an amazing man. Thank you. Uh, yes. I just want to quickly recommend a movie called Marshall. Oh, about Thurgood Marshall. It's about a case he had years before Brown versus Board of Education. Racism, anti-Semitism. It's it, all there. It's, it's all there, and it's for me. It was riveting. It's um, if you have movies on demand on your TV, you can get it. Was it was on the airplane, but I had uh, I could only watch four movies on it. Oh, so <laughs> all Amazon Prime, but it's um, you know the anti-Semitism part was so strong in wow. it. Wow. Okay, I'm gonna watch it. The rehearsal for the Purim Spiel is this Sunday. We need some people who identify as male to be in the cast. <laughs> <laughs> is that right? Or maybe we have an all-female cast, you know. It could be like uh, Shakespeare in reverse. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we're still looking for more people, right? Anybody can gone. join in. Yeah. Sunday from 2 to 4. Come if you want. We're going to figure out what we're doing. We're, we're putting on a show. It's really... We're, <laughs> we're it's fun. Winging it. Um, so, again... Carol and I are leading a service 
Friday night and Saturday morning where the liturgy are songs from the musical theater. Um, we've done it last year, and we did the year before. And, you know, those of us who grew up with, with those records and those shows, they're magnificent songs that speak to our deepest selves. Uh, so we're doing that. Come. It won't be your regular service. It'll be a fantastic prayers from the American Songbook. Um, okay. Thank you so much. I hope this is worth, worthwhile for you as it is for me. I'll see you next week in this class.